This is The Art Life. Hello, I'm Zandra Robinson Burns, writer and the protagonist of Heroin Training. And here with me to introduce today's interview is my co-host, actress and activist, Grace Gordon. Grace, who is our guest today? Our very special guest today is Athena Reddy, who is um, not only a friend of the show and a very talented actor and movement artist and model and musician. Um, Athena is, you know, my most consistent creative collaborator over the years and someone who has become over time an incredible mental health advocate. So I asked Athena to jump on the show to talk about mental health for artists, to talk about boundary setting and getting what you need in your um, professional or creative environments. And I, I'm just so excited for everyone to listen. So I know Athena, I've known Athena a long time. Um, we technically met because I couldn't wait to tell you this, Sandra, because I don't think you know this story. I have heard you sing Athena's praises so much, but I don't actually know how the two of you met. So in 2008, I was in New York City at a Wizard Rock Festival, the New York City Wizard Rock Festival. Um, and I see this incredible performer in a leather skirt um, doing like one of the best acts, probably the best act of the whole night. And uh, it was Athena, of course, um, with their band Nagini. And Athena, you know, had just incredible music and was such a such a performer, you know, capital P performer. This is a rock star um, and did, you know, Shakespeare at one point in their set. I don't even know if they would remember the set the way that I do. But I was in the audience and I was like, ooh, this person's special. And... Uh, in a couple years later, we met again at another show Athena played and, 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 um, they actually sat outside and hung out with me and my dad. And we were talking about all sorts of things from food allergies to music. And, and I actually remember a moment where they were talking about mental health. And, um, I was misdiagnosed, but at the time I had a bipolar diagnosis and so did Athena. And that was something that we connected on. And over the years, we've just had similar paths of, um, of, you know, being actors and being, uh, we have very similar taste in comedy and art and film. And we have very similar standards of integrity. And so we got to know each other over the years while they were training in, in the UK. Um, and then eventually we started working together. And it's just that, you know, this friendship has been such a gift of my life. And, a, but a major through line is an understanding of, uh, of mental illness and of the, the needs we might have. And, um, it's just been a very beautiful, supportive relationship for me over the years. And so I'm just so glad that Athena's on the show now talking about mental health for artists. I It was so wonderful to hear more in depth about Athena's art life and practices after getting to meet them so briefly at our social art party, our first art party that we just had. Athena made such a splash 
there were costume pieces and props, and I was just so intrigued. And um, so it was so great to get to hear more about their art. And so I'm so excited for everyone to discover Athena's art through this interview coming up. And before we get to it, we want to let you know about our upcoming art parties that we have planned for June. Yes, we have a silent art party on Tuesday, June 8th, uh, where we will all be gathering to just create in silence, but among uh, fellow artists, um, whether you're writing your morning pages or, you know, painting or doing a dance practice, we are welcoming you to join us for a silent art party. Um, it's a bit of more introverted party than you might be used to, but it's one where we'll be gathered together supporting each other through our processes. And then on June 19th, Saturday, June 19th, we'll be gathering for another social art party where we will have our lovely listeners uh, join us in asking, how is your art life? We had a great one last weekend, connecting with each other, learning about what new things we've discovered, what new cooking we've been doing. Um, oh my gosh, there were some incredible stories shared at, over the weekend at our social art party. So there's a lot to look forward to, and you are welcome. If you're listening to this episode, there are links in the show notes inviting you to uh, what's next. Yes, I want to extend in a special thank you to everyone who came to our social art party last month because it was, or I say last month, it was like two days ago, where it just turned into June. Um, it, this was our first ever one, so it was so, so special to have people show up and um, and be there for the, the premiere of this event type. So thank you for coming. And also, as... I kind of knew what happened. I want to let you know that the the conversation that we had inspired the YouTube video that I made this week. So that was inspired by our conversation about the freedom of being able to go to coffee shops, but also the ability to make that environment at home. So I did a YouTube video on how I set up my home workspace to be like a cafe. I love that. I look forward to watching. And there's, you know, there's just so many inspiring people who listen to this show. It's a good reminder. It's like, yeah, we host this thing, but all of you are super cool too. And you inspire us. So come join our parties and let us know what you're up to or make art with us. Uh, I can't wait for what's next. They are both at the same time at 11 a.m., Grace's time, Pacific Standard Time, 7 p.m., British Summer Time, and tickets are all pay what you can, and you can find the links at theartlife.show and or in the show notes for this episode. And with that, we have lots to look forward to this month, but I'm very much looking forward to sharing this interview with all of you. So let's get right into it. This is Athena Reddy talking about mental health for artists. This is The Art Life. Hello. I am here with one of my favorite people in the world, my producing partner. So much pressure. So much pressure. It's really pressure on the audience, Athena, because they now know they have to adore you. No. Otherwise, I'm canceling their subscriptions. I don't even think you can do that. 
go through Spotify and somehow hack them. That's a big threat. That's, big threat. That's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. <laughs> so um, I am here with Athena Reddy, who uses they, them pronouns. Athena uh, is an actor and musician and movement artist and a mental health advocate. And um, Athena, like I introduced kind of how I know you and what our origin story is in the intro with Zandra. Okay. So people people know how we met. The tale, the, the, the long and winding tale. That would take more than a 10 minute intro, but I'll give them I'll give I'm them some I'm assuming they listened to three hours of introduction of the tale and uh, now are experts. Great, great, great. Yes. <laughs> Um, since they'll know what you do uh, in the world, we really want to slow down and talk about like more of the daily life and the process yeah. on this show. Um, so just to just to get started, you know, everything that you do, everything that you that you love from the food you love, your daily practices, everything from this conversation itself to how you slept last night is part of your art life. So to get situated in the present moment. I just want to ask you, how is your art life? It is good. It is uh, decidedly lazy today. And I'm kind of in a replenishment mode, I guess. Um, so today my art life is just like, hey, I'm just floating on the lazy river doing whatever the hell I need to do today to uh, to feel groovy, to feel recovered. Um yeah, I finally slept well after a while of not sleeping well. So I'm just trying to not be overstimulated <laughs> and just like allow for this replenishment day to happen. Basically, doesn't you know? The this week has been the eclipse and Mercury retrograde combination has already been hellacious. So I'm glad to know that you're sleeping. I just like if there's bad astrological what not bad, but if there are like malefics happening, if there's shit that's like touching my chart the wrong way. I am like, I'm just going to withdraw. I'm going to just be above it all or whatever. I think also when it comes to talking about astrology, one of the most powerful things that I've actually found about, you know, tracking uh, current astrological weather, uh, one of the most awesome things I think you can do with that information is um, if you are an artist, you can put themes of it in your art and I've found that like from a magical perspective, that takes a little bit of the pressure out of them appearing in your life in places that you don't you don't want them. So um, if there are any kind of like if you can do a painting about a computer breaking, maybe it lets mm. steam. I like I like to think because with Mars stuff, if like Mars is transiting crazy and I am having anger kind of stuff is like, OK, how do I put it in my work so that it doesn't uh, steam up inside steam up inside? of? Does anybody even say that? No, let the steam out. I don't know. It's, I've got, it's gotten away from me, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I do know what you mean. I, that's such a, I'm so glad that we started with this because I know I, like like Zandra was so curious about some of your astrology work and I love that we're starting yeah. with uh, you know this this uh, this tip this hot, hot tip, tip hot tip surviving. draw a picture of uh, a fire if you feel like you know oh Mars is affecting me or you know oh there's an eclipse and it's and it's heavy. I think you can just put it into your work. I mean, when you talk about being process oriented, it's like if you have a regular practice, like, for example, if you're um, a singer or an artist, like, you know, that warm up 
part of everything. Like you're just like, oh, I'm doing just doing rough sketches, just doing, you know, just playing through my scales absentmindedly on my instrument, whatever it is. I think that, you know, you can put thought intention to intention to your warm up, even just to be like, here is what this retrograde station means to to me and like exploring the symbolism symbolism of it a little bit more through your work instead of being like this is a mercury retrograde and here are the things that societally it means i think one of the best things you can do with astrological imagery is to mark time by making art that relates to your experience of it you know rather than allowing it to be this di- dictatorial thing that that guides mm. you or like that you have to just like oh i know that this um i know that moon's in aquarius today and that's in my sixth house so i'm just gonna be mindful of sixth house things if you, you kind of know the language of the thing you know where you bring your attention is so is so powerful and if you're an artist i think artists are like a form of magician or you know a form of magician that are automatic so even if you don't like have any kind of astrological sort of like study under your belt or you don't have any sort of like esoteric um magical study under your belt if you're an artist you're automatically a magician because you're making something out of nothing on a constant basis right so there wasn't anything on this page and then i drew a knight on this page and i chose red and i chose to make his face look dumb you know and and so i think that sort of the idea of a magician or somebody who uses occult practices what's interesting is that like artists are doing it anyway so whether you know the language of say like the tarot or astrology or the kabbalah like that's all great but you're probably doing it anyway you know right yeah right. you're probably doing it anyway so whether or not you know you know somebody else's system or language for it um i think like the cons- the consistency of your own inner world in the way like you warm up or you know keeping these things in mind but also going oh my own inner set of symbols and my consistency with myself is that kind of thing interfaces really well with uh learning systems like magical systems or uh astrological systems or time marking systems it's like you as the thing in it is is what makes it useful, you know? <laughs> well, and what a perfect segue to talking about what our our episode topic is, which is mental health for artists, because so much of this conversation I want to have with you is about the, you know, diagnosis or the labels that we get, um, the pathology that we get, and then learning to to either transmute that into art to exist within that confine, but also make something beautiful of your life. Um, you know, here's what you're handed. Here's what you have to the cards you were dealt. And uh, what do you do with that? Um, which is a kind of a beautiful connection to what you just said about astrology, even the the malefic aspects on the astrological calendar. Yeah. So I wanted to start with you going back to talk about something we all think about a lot, I think, as artists is these sort of stories we hear about artists are crazy or, you know, drunks or whatever it is um, that we grow up with. Uh, I wanted to ask you what impactful stories you grew up with about artists and mental illness and how they influenced your beliefs about yourself. Yeah. um, Well, so I was diagnosed with bipolar one when I was about 14. And so between the ages of 14 and 21, I had three hospitalizations. And from because I was so young when I entered into mental health treatment and it was early 2000s, it was a, 
a time period where I feel like a lot of kids were getting diagnosed and these things were uh, starting to be a lot more in the language of the culture, but it's still people weren't as literate as they are today. And I think, um, you know, I mean, it's not that long of time, but we're coming really, really far when it comes to it. But I think there were a scant amount of resources that the adults had in my life to be like, there are other people like you with this. And so I think one of the first times I I kind of made some kind of connection between like, uh, ooh, artists are might have mental health problems, and there's some kind of relationship between those two con like th- between those two concepts was I was in the hospital and um, there was an adult in my life who sent me a a book that was Van Gogh's letters to his brother Theo, and like there like in the culture like it's like oh Van Gogh also had bipolar disorder, whatever. And it's like, well, you don't know that because the diagnostic criteria didn't exist then, but okay. Right. It's all just people's perceptions of him that we're working with, stories about him. Yeah. Absolutely. And so it's like, okay, so first we have this kind of whack thing. And I was I was in a I, I was a very outspoken kid. So I remember reading the book and like doing a lot of crying because the loneliness was really relatable. Like his letters to his brother, his loneliness was really relatable. But then Mm. like, I have always been really critical. So I was like, you shouldn't have given me this book. This guy kills himself. The only thing I'm relating to is that, you know, he was also lonely and that was like a profoundly depressing choice to give to to, to me. (laughs) It was so, it was so bizarre. And like, I knew it was, and I was like, pissed about it for years you know yeah. I, was like, I was like why did you do that but uh until I think to counter that I think you know uh, in time there were other adults who were like oh Carrie Fisher Carrie Fisher has the same diagnosis as you and is also this like outspoken person who um who is who was you know obviously at that time was alive and right. that like actually lived within a time where you could speak about diagnosis so I think Carrie Fisher was the second person that I knew who had bipolar disorder and that that was something then reading her books and hearing her be candid uh, was something that existed in the juxtaposition to the Van Gogh projections that were occurring. <laughs> yeah. uh, another person actually that came up very early when I was getting diagnosed and some of the adults in my life knew and and we're trying to figure out the language of it all and the treatment of it all. And it was a, it was a hard time. But actually, the first astrologer I ever went to was the mom of a friend of mine um, who was this this girl was on my gymnastics team. And the second her mom like drew up my chart on her software, she was like, ah, you know, you have sun and cancer, moon and Capricorn and Virgo rising like Ernest Hemingway, who was also depressed. And I'm like, don't tell me that that guy was a drunk. Like, this is not good. I'm I'm a, I'm a kid. Like, but I was always just baffled because everyone was trying to tell me what the experience of the thing was or who I could look to. But I was trying to figure out also what the experience of the thing was for me. So, you know, there were artistic people in the sphere, but also none of them were quite doing what I wanted to do because when I was a kid, I started as a, a musician. I'm still a musician. I, you know, even though I found my way to acting, it, it wasn't till later. So there weren't a lot of like musicians in the canon of what I, I was. I was, I was vaguely aware that musicians go into a zone that is, you know, and I've been mm. to that zone. And, but, you know, uh, I think also this general wash of like, oh, like lots of artists have mental illness. It, it has made me question over the years, whether like when I'm in the zone, cause I can, you know, really get in the zone sometimes is that, you know, where is that, uh, 
intersecting with my mania? Where is that intersecting with my hypomania? Like, I get nervous, uh, I think, sometimes making art because I don't, well, I used to for a long time not be sure how much of my energy was this unwell energy, right. you know, because I was diagnosed so early. So I I grew up with the framework of bipolar disorder. I, I grew up the framework of the the terms of how to deal myself with myself in terms of that. So every thing I did, I was sort of combing through to see if it was unwell. Um, so the sort of history of artists uh, kind of scared me, I think, uh, too, because like I didn't want to die, you know, <laughs> like. Well, and I think that there's a, a fetishization of bipolar illness, and I think that there's a fetishization of artists creating in a manic state. Yeah, yeah. And when you've actually been there, it that's really scary. Yeah, I can't. I mean, the thing that's funny is that people think that, and in, like in my experience, like when I've had full mania, I can't concentrate on it. I can't. I can't concentrate on reading. I can't concentrate right. on. Like the work gets worse the further it goes, and um, for people unfamiliar with, like, I guess it's just bipolar disorder terminology. There's hypomania, which can be productive. It's sort of like a lower form of mania. Maybe you're sleeping a little less, whatever. Um, and I think hypomania is really interesting because it's for me, I've had hypomania for longer periods of time. And then as I sleep less and sleep less and sleep less, it kind of spins out into full mania where it's like absolutely, absolutely useless, absolutely dangerous, you know. <laughs> and so what's interesting about hypomania, and there's a book called The Hypomanic Advantage, which I haven't read because I don't think it's a good idea for me to read it. But I, I was going to say, <laughs> stay away. Yeah, I don't want to do it. But it just seems like because like corporate culture and productivity are so highly valued that mm -hmm. hypomania in some ways is really highly valued. And I've seen that in my life. Like, um, like compliments on my relentless work ethic, like, yes. you know, kind of my ability to show up early to my conservatory training and do some work on my own, but, but I couldn't sleep. So, you know, you kind of get hyper productive and, you know, full of just energy, but uh, it's, it's an unsustainable form of energy, even when it's like focused and useful. Uh, so I think I've gotten, yeah, like sort of put on a pedestal about it. Like, Ooh, what a work ethic. Like, so, uh, you know, like it's like, I would be sleeping if I could right now. <laughs> and I think it's fair to say that like, it is part of our, the sickness of our culture, right? This like capitalist sort of, uh, drive yourself to the bone yeah. grind culture. And, you know, there are many people who induce a hypomanic state Oh yeah, through drugs, through, you know, either whatever through through prescribed or not prescribed drugs um yeah, it's definitely and like, so that adds another layer yeah. of like people choose this thing that ends up you know crashing yeah everyone kind of wants a, a a taste of it i i remember very and i i mean i do it too like i will take stimulants like i shouldn't be drinking coffee not not shouldn't but like i gotta be careful drinking coffee like we gotta right you know but there are times when yeah that that state is it can be really addictive and i think it's part of why people don't see seek treatment it can be you know you can really get a lot done but if you're in a case like me and with bipolar one you have you the, the, some of the diagnostic criteria is that you've had one full manic episode. Every single hypomania to me just feels like it could spin out. And so I, I have, 
I have pretty strict rules with myself at this at this point, even when other people are like, wow, you're getting a lot done. And I just try to block that out and be like, that is not by what I measure myself by, because I could be getting a lot done and forgetting to eat for a day. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that that sort of like sleep is for the weak corporate culture. Like I grew up around a lot of, uh, oh God, in my early 20s, I had a lot of friends in my circle who were like programmers, who were like computer Mm -hmm. kids and who were like, uh, like really valued energy drinks, hyper productivity, like like the programmers are, I think, bonkers in that way because they're the they're likely to be doing the Adderall or like abusing certain drugs to like stay awake as if mm-hmm. as if you don't need to sleep. Like it's just everyone always crashes when they push it too far, you know, whether it's clinically severe or or just, you know, don't do it. <laughs> Yeah. And you've had to figure out over time, like what are the systems that you have to put in place to protect yourself and to work with whatever your energy state is? Like you've had to figure it out for yourself. And I know you've had a lot of training, not just as an actor, but also as a musician since you were a kid. And even as a gymnast, you know, had all of these mentors. And I'm, I'm really curious about what you wish all of the training had included and taught you about mental illness? Well, I think what's interesting is that none of my training, I mean, none of my training as an artist owed me to, to like, you know, as a kid, as a gymnast, as a, you know, kid playing classical music, all of these like structured things. I don't, and you know, like my master's as an actor, like I've been in a lot of structured systems and I don't think those systems owe me anything because they're not mental health professionals, but I True. You know, like, but I, and so, but I do think my mental health for me is cared for by being consistent with my art. Um, and so, you know, for example, like I grew up with a mentor uh, who, because I was a clarinetist and uh, am a clarinetist, but um, now more instruments, but uh, like he, he, he didn't, he was not mental health literate, but he was compassionate. You know, like the, I think along the way, I even if people, especially during the time when I was younger, didn't have the sort of literacy they needed um, for it is that they were, you know, respecting the kind of benefits that I was getting from from making my art. And I think the best thing that, you know, anyone ever did for me was I, I think there were adults in my environment who um, who said, you know, you don't have to you know, push yourself. You don't have to keep going if you don't want to. I had a very bad manic episode when I was doing um, my master's in acting. It was like conservatory style school. And I had people tell me, you know, you don't have to finish this. You don't have. But they could tell Mm. that it was good for me. And so I think what would have been more useful for me as somebody who went through all of this kind of more structured training in my life would have been useful as if the culture were just more literate about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, but I think I've seen along the way people genuinely, you know, asking questions, being curious, ask what I needed. I think nowadays it's much more um, accepted for somebody to, you know, especially creatively come into a workspace, be very candid and say, I have bipolar one, you know, I'm, I, you know, for me, it's like, you know, if I fill out something, I'm very honest about it. If it's like, do you need like, here's the paperwork for this shoot, whatever, making a movie. And, you know, do you need anything special? And usually I just write, I have bipolar one, I, I am on medication, it's usually doesn't get in the way of my work. Uh, but, you know, I'll let you know. And usually like a producer or a director will have a conversation with me and just be like, um, 
it's good to know this. And then they'll kind of leave the door open to talk about it. And these days, it's like, I don't really need anything particularly, but to just know that people know is really good. Um, But that's becoming a lot more common. And I'm becoming a lot more comfortable with being candid. Like when I was younger, and even through training and stuff, I saw my you know, I, I saw my disorder as like this thing that I really needed to hide because I was scared that mm-hmm. like people wouldn't let me keep training or learning. I was scared that people would see me be crazy or like attribute my personality to this illness. And I noticed in my life, you know, over the years that, you know, when I open up to somebody about having this thing, about having experiences with this this illness, um, I've seen people over time treat me differently after I tell them. So, I mean, it, it it's and I don't like it. Right. Like to the negative, you mean like they're walking on eggshells yeah, or something like or or they have some kind of or, you know, or they have just like very broad stroke knowledge of it and. Um, they think it's like, oh, I just like I saw a Silver Linings playbook. Are you like Bradley Cooper? And I'm like, well, I'm not unlike Bradley Cooper in that movie, but like I <laughs> like it's not it's not that or like they have some kind of vague, you know, understanding of what it is if they haven't had in their lives, whatever. And so I think sometimes it's just like um, yeah, I've kept it close to the vest over the years because A, I haven't historically loved some of the people's changing response to me. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and also because I was scared that I would lose work. I was so candid in my social life about all of it because I I learned that I have to learn how to ask for help and and be very honest from moment to moment. So switching gears into my professional life was it took me a long time to um when the circumstance is right, like if I need to mention um stuff, like if I need like to if I need something different, like, for example, I've experienced auditory hallucinations. And if I'm in a if I'm in if I'm in live theater, and there's going to be sound effects, I have to go listen to what they are that are going to be on stage before, like, say, the first technical rehearsal, or else I might get freaked out. And so they're just Mm. little practical things I think are specific to, you know, different people's experiences. Um, Because I was in like a spooky play. And I was like, Okay, there's going to be spooky noises. Like, <laughs> who can I talk to about these spooky noises? Um, for me, it's just knowing my disorder well enough and acknowledging it. Like, okay, there's uh, some things I need to make me work best. And for me, it's just like about being really super business about it. It's like, hello, yeah. I have this thing. Uh, here's what I might need. And usually people, I, I'm lucky because I'm in the arts. I don't know what it's like in like the business world or like all that shit. But like, for me, it's I've slowly come around to when I need to asking for what I need and just being really cool. And um, usually people answer the call. And I find that that is double true and in like a class you pay for. So, I, I mean, I would general blanket advise if like you need something. If you need people to know shit, tell them like email is so great. Yeah. Like you'll be starting a like I did a yoga teacher training. And I was just like, you know, the the woman who ran the training, I I dropped her an email. I was like, hey, I know I filled this out on my like intake paperwork, but I just want to let you know, you know, there's this and this and, you know, and and she was cool and she knew, you know, it's just it's becoming more part of the allowing people to care for themselves in in broader ways. So um, I forgot what the question was, but I don't. 
Well, that's, no, you answered it beautifully. And, and I'm actually really glad that you brought up the yoga teacher training because from what I've noticed, at least, it seems like movement practices um, of, of all sorts have been really great for you in terms of emotional regulation and, and settling your nervous system. And I know you actually teach some movement meditation classes. And um, I'm just, I, I'm curious about that aspect of your own personal, like mental health care the more body-based activities, how they've been useful for you and um, like where you, when you started to realize how important that piece was, even in mental health. Oh yeah. Well, um, sort of my, my parents were phys ed teachers and I come from a real sportsy family. So from a very early age, I was encouraged to do like try out whatever sports I wanted to um, and, and do all of that kind of stuff. So from a pretty early age, I, I started as a gymnast and that was something that really um the velocity of tumbling the velocity of certain activities i also spent all of my childhood on on rollerblades and i knew that i had this like velocity part of me that i needed to get at, like out of my system so that it wouldn't so it was like a visceral feeling when i was younger like i could feel the internal velocity sort of pile up and be you know, very pressuresome. So I think it was an instinct from very early. And I was lucky enough to be around people who were like, yeah, skate, just wear a helmet. I don't care. Jump off the thing. Like do, do, do it, you know, learn how to do it. And I think even from being, you know, if you've ever been in like gymnastics when you're a kid, they make you do conditioning stuff too. And, and you learn, you know, you learn, um, what's the difference between like, something that hurts that hurts in a bad way and something that hurts in a way where you're getting stronger. And um, and so I think the earlier you learn that, the easier it is to sort of see like exercise or physical practices as a positive thing um, because it's mm -hmm. it's there's such a learning curve if you don't start young, but but you can get, you know, anyone can get used to it. But I think that for me, I was always really, really fascinated with bodies. And I was always asking myself this question, like, why do we think that the mind is just like in the head region? And why, mm. you know, because I, I'm always hungry, and I feel like I am actively thinking with my stomach or, you know, mm. I, I, I think I was just a very kinesthetic person from very early on. And I, I hated this sort of cultural idea that the, the, the brain was in the head and that's where thoughts are. That didn't make sense to me. I was a real abstract thinker. And I was like, no, actually, some of my thoughts are in my foot, some of, you know. And so uh, during, yeah, so, I mean, I got tall really fast and had to stop gymnastics. And at some point I picked up fencing and stage combat. And I, young enough, was lucky enough to be in like Alexander Technique and and pure movement classes that like weren't about achieving uh, achieving a dance, say in 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 move, certain movement classes, they were more about discovering y yourself, you know, and discovering like where are impulses in the body and and that sort of thing. And as somebody who was like always being treated in terms of people talking about brain chemistry and all of this stuff, it felt like my right. head was being separated from my body the way that I understood my body. So I've just actively sought out practices that are like about body intelligence. So for those who don't know, can you explain what uh, Alexander Technique is? Yeah, Alexander Technique is um, a movement philosophy, I would call it, uh, created by this guy, F.M. Alexander, who 
at one point he was like an orator, like he spoke to people and, and read things. Um, and he lost his voice and he went to the doctor and this is like, you know, Victorian times. I want to say <laughs> he lost his voice and he went to the doctor. It may be later than Victorian times. Don't quote me on that. But um, I won't. <laughs> you can Google it. He's FM Alexander. But essentially <laughs> his story was that he lost his voice. He went to a doctor. The doctor really wasn't able to fix it because he kept losing his voice over and over again. And you can kind of like treat the pain and wait for it to get better. But his conclusion was, I must be doing something wrong, like in my habits. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, he went down this avenue of like really examining the way we think about movements. And so Alexander Technique is a, there are a lot of branches of it. And the kind that I have the most training in is called interactive teacher method, which is a lot less about like adjusting people's bodies or telling them how to like have good posture. It's really more about um, the poise of the person and then the way that they move through space, but specifically with interactive teacher method, Um, It's about a conversation. It's about the conversation we have with ourselves about the way the body works, because there are all these like mental projections about how your body works that are based on weird shit that got into your brain or like habits that just fell there. And so a lot of with um, interactive teacher method, like it's like there are like just mind things. It's about my mind's relationship with my body. Am I... Um, just walking through this space the way I habitually do. Have I examined that kind of thing? And like uh, we say, think about your head in relation to your body and notice what that means. Do you try to adjust? Are you actively trying to wrench yourself places? Can you just give the thought to your body and see Mm. what it does with it? Um, Another big principle of it is assess present circumstances and like just checking in with that. Like couple times a day assess present circumstances external circumstances internal circumstances so it's really about the way we're framing our bodies and the way we're framing our movement through the world and not letting those thoughts um, pass us by without some examination of some sort Um, and I think that in me over the past few years especially as I've gone down this avenue with Alexander Technique um, it's really similar to the, you know, the word yoga, it, it comes from yoking, yoking the mind and body and Alexander technique is not dissimilar. Like all of these things for me that I've studied really cross over. And there's such a blaring, uh, thing in these that the thoughts affect the body and the body affects the thoughts. It's this symbiotic relationship. So when it comes to, you know, caring for my mental health and stuff, I've just personally found that it, Alexander Technique is wonderful and a lot of my practices and my meditation, uh, my guided meditation stuff is a combination of Alexander Technique style thinking along with a practice called somatic descent, which is about really dropping into your body and noticing what your body is trying to communicate to you rather than just mm-hmm. your, you know, mind or willpower, like strong arming the the body. So it's like that back and forth conversation. And I think that that's something I really I really needed as somebody who was taught that there was something specifically wrong with like the brain, the thoughts, the Mm -hmm. behavior. And I'm like, that doesn't come just from the head. Like, um, yeah, that's part of, you know, I think also like for me, it's like more than just Alexander technique, but it's more than just the lessons that I go to. And same thing with yoga. It's more than just the practice I do. It's how it affects the rest of my day. And like mm-hmm. I, I am, I have found the most in all of this is that 
you know, it's not really about the gymnastics class I would do. It was about how a certain kind of brave and structured thinking was available to me in the rest of my life, that it's not just about the yoga class you go to and you go to it and then then you leave and go to lunch. It's about the principles you can carry with you. And I think that is huge. Like that is, that is a huge help to my mental health because within all of these uh, discipline practices, uh, there are principles that are like very widely uh, uh, applicable to so many areas in life. Yeah. Yeah. More and more, I firmly believe that the concept of how you do one thing is how you do everything. And having awareness around that and being willing to look at you know, to look at myself Mm -hmm. with that lens really helps strengthen my relationships and my work life and my body and everything, even when, even when how I'm doing one thing is bad, you know, like the willingness to, to really look at that and look how a mindset or a pattern is affecting all parts of my yeah. life has been so helpful. I can't, I didn't plan to ask you this, but I can't resist just because, you know, as an actor, I'm so, I'm so uh, curious how this training, this school of thought has affected how you shape a character. Oh, well, it's kind of great. Cause if you're in, so I very much believe in the school of like actor problem, character problem. So mm-hmm. like if say some, piece of scenery falls on stage and it's near me and if my character is somebody who would interact with it I have to interact with it like so I I think Alexander technique and this style of thinking I mean because I learned it first at drama school it's a huge part of um it can be a huge part of certain training programs Alexander technique mm-hmm. so I I mean I did it every Friday and the way that it would happen is at the beginning of learning Alexander technique uh, you work on an activity, a simple activity, right? And and so you come in and you say, my activity today is sitting in a chair. And you start really, really, really simple. So you um, come in and you sit in the chair and you're sitting in front of the rest of the group. And the teacher does some hands-on stuff making like reminding you like say how a shoulder joint works or they're just noticing little things but mostly it's about the conversation and the observations of the people in your class and so you start out with things like sitting in a chair I just want to stand here Um, then then you as you go on in class and you start of sort of start to be examining these simple things and moving through these simple things, um, I would bring in a, a, a monologue or a, a way a character was walking in a costume. You know, you bring that into Alexander class and you do the same sort of back and forth dialogue with the teacher, the people watching you and with yourself. And maybe there's some hands on adjustment Um you know, it's really so much about freeing freedom of movement. So it, and in a lot of ways, uh, so I brought in a character who was like very gothic and ghostly and hyperbolic and moved very strangely. And I was wearing this, um, I was wearing this costume that was like, it was a lot, it was like a lot of fabric. And um, so I, I brought that into my Alexander Technique teacher and I I went about the scene the way that I would go about the scene and then I would do it again with some Alexandrian adjustments. So, um, you know, installing that thinking of uh, assess present circumstances, this, uh, this moment of me doing this character is not like the previous one. It's all new mm. for this circumstance right here, right now. <laughs> and, um, you know, Alexander Technique m- movement isn't about one way of moving. And it's not about moving perfectly. It's moving 
according to the way you want to in a way that's free where everything feels available. Um, so when you're building a character like movement, movement style, uh, yeah, I would often bring it into Alexander technique, but now sort of not, uh, I, I still meet with my Alexander teacher in, in this like advanced group every week. But when it comes to building a character, a lot of times, as I'm making choices for movement, whatever, I, I, my baseline for everything is like, okay, think about my head in relation to my body. And then it's like, assess present circumstances. Okay, on the inside today, I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling really, really relaxed. But, you know, this, this character is going through a really tense moment. So present circumstances is that I'm going to have to dial up my energy a whole bunch, you know, um, that sort of thing. It's, it's you, you have such a great language with yourself and a great conversation with yourself in almost a really objective way. Once you get used to Alexander style thinking, um, that, that, you know, when you're building character, when you're interacting with text, you're, you know, you've installed, say the, the script in your body and you've installed, you've, you've made some choices with your head, but Alexander technique for me is a way of, um, being able to do my ideas on my body in a way that feels free and the way that feels like it can be different every time because of the way that I think about my body. I'm not like projecting my idea of what I want to move like and be like. I'm like taking the idea, understanding what is available to me. And it, it ends up, you know, great. I'm not, I don't know if I answered that. <laughs> That's sort of how Alexander Technique works. Um, in my life and physical activities. Well, it's a wonderful example of the contrast between that way of being, you know, which is truthful and free and in the present moment, as opposed to when you can tell that someone is is performing, yeah. that they're not the character, that they are doing acting, you yeah. know, that they're 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 doing the script in the way that they planned. Yeah. They're just like going through the motions, even in an audition, in the way that they planned which ends up coming across as very fake and like bad acting. Yeah. And so you're sort of explaining that this process that you have that makes you more of a person. Yeah, totally. Because you're all you have to work with. So you're never like deleting yourself from the equation of creating a character. You, you, you literally, literally using your own body and voice. And even though those things can be, you know, changed and, and shifted, I feel like the more you know you have available in your own, you know, in your own court, in your own body, and you're using it. I think, you know, um, yeah, it's like, like I said, again, like actor problem, character problem, man, if you if you prepare that thing too rigidly, how do you adjust when you go into your callback and the office is freezing cold, but you, you know, right. and you've been rehearsing in a tank top or the circumstance is hot and you've used to, you know, actor problem, character problem, you figure you got to figure that shit out. And so if you're not constantly assessing present circumstances and working with them, you know, there's yeah. this sort of like working with it, like you get a scene, you know, maybe you get a reader at an audition who like giving you something that didn't work with your choices I just my whole principle with that anyway is just to give everything to the re reader like be ready to yeah. to really interact with that person like a person yeah I think it's about personhood and I think beyond actors like the way we see ourselves these days in this two-dimensional way on um on mm -hmm. our screens and social media and stuff I think that you know we all end up performing in ways and then we all find um our truths feel and look a lot different than how we like yeah. curate a, a performance. And well, I mean, even, you know, Zandra's off social media completely at this wow, point. Cool. 
And I think, which is so impressive. Yeah, I thought you'd I like, do that. like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I notice in my own life, you know, friends who are not actors, who are not business owners, who are not running a business account, whatever, they're very concerned still with their personal brand wild. of their social media. And it's wild. I'm like, why? Wait, you're, you're very concerned with your brand. And I'm like, what the fuck does that yeah. mean? Like you can't post a certain thing on your social media because it's out of alignment with this very two-dimensional idea of yourself that you feel obligated to project into the world. It's so the opposite of what you're talking about right now. And it's so confining. Wow. Yeah, I think that there's that I think a lot of people must feel the lack of fullness, you know, and, and, mm. and, you know, uh, when I teach, when I teach my, um, like body meditation classes, I am constantly like giving the cue to remind people that they have dimensions to their body, you know, that you can direct right. your breath into the back of your lungs. You can experiment with, you know, not just that two dimensional image that you're dimensional. And I find that, um, I find that to be really helpful. It's helpful for me too. Like even if I'm feeling depressed and numb or something, you know, I think that um, I've gotten more data from my body, even if I'm feeling so gray, you know, I've at mm. least like had a relationship with um, my, my physical senses in a way where it's like, well, I feel really gray and I, you know, I have really bad anhedonia, which is like the inability to like feel pleasure. And so like, I won't mm -hmm. be able to feel love sometimes if I'm in a really bad, like down depression. Um, but I will be able to feel like, uh, like this, like warm liquid if I hold the cup in my hands, you know, and, and like just even noticing just tiny things like that, even if I'm not, um, even if it's not pleasurable, if it's a sense, it's like, at least I'm still there in a more dimensional way. Cause you just feel so flattened and gray, um, during depression. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that I started at least, you know, learning more of the somatic experiencing mm -hmm. things in the past few years. And it's been more helpful to me by far than a lot of the sort of detached pathologizing, um, you know, heady concepts that I've lived with when it comes to mental health. And, you know, even noticing of just like, oh, my hips tightened after I talked to this yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just noticing that. And that means that something. That means something. Like little things your body are doing. And it's like, oh, I'm pulling into myself. It's not because I don't like this person. It's because it's fucking cold in this room. And like, you know, temperature <laughs> is really like that. I feel like, well, for me at least, but I notice a lot of people who get cold easily. It's like, I'm going to be more anxious if the room is cold because I'm like pulling into myself. And so that makes yeah. me more tense. So they're like, it's, it's like they're getting to know your body's um, sensory language with you. It's like, do I hate this person or is it cold in here? And then you're like, am I hungry? Am I hungry? <laughs> Did my hips tighten like because I have an injury or is it a sign that I want space from this other person, you know, and I think just just examining those those physical inputs and being open to um, feeling them. I love I did I did somatic experiencing therapy and one of the best um, little tricks I took away from it, which has been so healing is, you know, if like a, a tra trauma response comes up in me, I and I'm thinking the thoughts and I'm seeing the images or something's like triggered, you know, um, and I feel it say like, I feel it a tightness in my chest or like wherever you feel it on your body. I had an injury to my shoulder. Um, it, you know, that was a violent experience. I used to feel stuff in my shoulder and feel scared and feel protective and feel like you're tensing. 
And one of the things that my somatic experiencing therapist told me was like, if that comes up, then you can look somewhere in the room, like focus on, you know, an object in the room. And like I would breathe and I would tell myself that I was safe. And so even though my shoulders remembering this violent injury, it, it's a way of assessing present circumstances of being here, being now, knowing that I'm looking at my jacket that's hanging on the, the door and that there is some light coming off of it. And it puts you in it puts you in the place that you're in rather than being stuck inside of the pain that's inside of you. And even if the pain is still there, you're at least acknowledging the surrounding. You're at least acknowledging um, who you are in the place you are now rather than, you know, being swallowed by the, the memory of where your body is holding the other thing. And slowly, slowly over time, that kind of thing really helped me. There was a point where I, um, you know, she recommended that I set alarms in my phone, just reminding wow. myself to look at my environment, take a moment, notice something, breathe, and it situates you in your environment if you're somebody who is so inside your head or, mm-hmm. you know, or replaying memories or uh, involved in anxieties about the future every now and then to just stop. And it's like so much less intimidating than like doing, say, a meditation app where you're like, oh, my God, I said it for 20 minutes. This guy's talking. Do I have to be still? I Like, you know, I think that that causes a lot of people are like, I, I, I can't meditate. And it's like, well, meditating is a thousand fucking things. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like not just the the mindfulness apps that, you know, are, are telling people even even some of this modern meditation stuff is wild to me because it like it seems like oh we're going to put it in our office so that people can be more productive it's even being used toward like yes. this recharges your battery so you can keep working like it right everything is being so detached from its spiritual like like origin yeah. from the reason it fucking exists just because it ends up getting used for capitalism and that's so insulting. It's disgusting. Yeah. I think it's disgusting. And I think the the best antidote to some of that, because it for me is just like tiny, tiny moments of the day, living the principles, whether I'm mm. like putting the alarms in my phone, that's just like, hey, stop, look at something in the space. Wow, you're in this space. And, you know, even if I'm in like my own world creating, it's actually been really helpful and really sustainable for me to come back <laughs> to the room I'm in, you know, mm-hmm. um, in and also, you know, she taught me that and I and I have this in a few of my practices, but um, that that there's, you know, if there's an area of your body that is feeling discomfort or pain or even if that's like your mind racing, you can always give it a go to put your thought energy on a part of your body that either feels like neutral or pleasurable and the recognition that both your discomfort mm. and a neutrality exist in one person, exist on one body. Um, I find that to be really, really helpful because it's like, oh, then the pain or the anxiety is not the overarching force. There's also that, you know, my leg is you know even if my leg doesn't feel great right now it's at least neutral and it's not in pain and that's really cool you know i think it uh that just helps me i think it i notice that helps a lot of people too well and i think with for so many of us with a mental illness as well 
we our brains are sort of programmed to notice the pain yeah and to just and to even attach our entire identities yeah. around something painful whether it's a diagnosis or you know something going on in your body we really attach our entire identities around this thing and it we have to retrain our whole brains to notice the good or to notice what we are good at, to mm-hmm. see ourselves as more three-dimensional beings than just this one area. Yeah. And I think that like the the mind, like, like our bodies and our minds, I believe, um, they make these traumas or these bad things, they make them loud to us because they, they at one point were protecting us. Like it's a you know, it's this protective measure to be like, this bad thing happened. Uh, protect yourself, protect yourself. But right. that's and that story becomes loud just because the the brain wants to short short. You know, the brain's always trying to make things easier. So, like, if something bad happened and anything reminds you of it, you're going to be like, that reminds the brain of this. And mm-hmm. I think learning how to have like a conversation with that part of your mind and be like, okay, so that is what happened in the past. Is this the same? And maybe mm-hmm. it is. You know, but being able to step away and slow it down. Um, is is a is a big deal. It's hard to learn, but it's doable. It just takes like that slow practice over time. I think of uh, and the retraining. I think comes with just acknowledging that there may always be like that red flag feeling for me. It's like there there may always be um, there may always be depressions where I have anhedonia. Right? There might always be depressions where I can't I can't feel pleasure. And all I can do is like train my train my logical brain hard enough to say, hey, this always passes, like to to make sure that part is as as much as I can, even if it's on a list in my phone, you know, even if it's not me in the moment doing it. I mean, I just actively use technology to remind me shit. It's like you, you know, uh, hey, come back into the room or like eat or like, you know, I try to use it. just to I've used it to retrain myself over the years for sure just sort of being like you're not where you were this is a safe place like you're talking about using systems uh you know using systems like technology to to go about your day and to reprogram your brain in a more healthy way and um it's funny cuz we we actually touched on this question at the beginning of this interview but my my last question for you was from my my co-host and uh Zandra wanted to know how astrology uh, helped you best support your mental wellness and what, where in people's natal charts, where in a natal chart should artists look for insight on their own mental health? Um, and it's just sort of interesting talking about these systems and these vocabularies that we learn. Yeah. Um, so like the short answer to where do you look for mental health in the chart is, um, the axis of the sixth and the twelfth house. So the sixth house can often be the house of illness in general, but it's also about um, it's really about daily self care in a lot of ways. The themes of the sixth house are something like that. So you can look to your sixth house if it has planets in it. Uh, look at the condition of those planets. Are the planets comfortable there? What are they aspecting? That can give you some insight into. Um, I think the daily daily rituals and the self-care and essentially the sixth house is is a place where, you know, illness can show up in a lot of forms. Uh, uh, doctors or the kinds of doctors we need can show up in a lot of forms. And it's very much the house of like, you know, how are we kind of a slave to our body? Not in a bad way, but in a um, sort of I'm here for you, body. Here are the things that, you know, you might need, you know. So, you know, if you're looking at your 
chart in a whole sign house system, which is what how I use astrology. Um, and for example, my sixth house is ruled by Aquarius. Aquarius's ruler is Saturn. So I would look to, I have no planets in that house, but that plan, that house is still ruled by Aquarius for me because I'm Virgo rising. And then I would look to the ruler of that house and I would look to what house that was in. And you import themes from one house to another. So the sixth house and the ruler of the sixth and whatever planets are in the sixth are going to be uh, some insight for you there. And then on um, the opposite of the sixth is the twelfth house. And the twelfth house in classical astrology is often called the house of hidden enemies. It can be a very subconscious-y kind of house. It can be a very spooky house. Um, it can be a house where we feel separate from other people, where it describes like exile and um, apartness. And so looking at the same thing, any planets in your twelfth, uh, what the ruler of the twelfth is, where that ruler of the 12th is in your chart and importing themes from that other house. Um, So, and yeah, the 12th house can be about things that are kind of hidden from us. And the 6th and the 12th are at an axis because the 12th is like, ooh, there's these shadowy things that feel hidden. And I think that there's a lot of like looking at our our darkness can be in the 12th Um, and looking uh, at our daily habits that can like support a good relationship with that darker stuff uh, is going to be in the 6th. So learning a lot about the 6th and the 12th house axis and what language that's speaking in your chart um, but but mental health stuff can show up in a lot of different places in the chart. Like so, uh, for example, like the two malefics in astrology are Saturn and Mars and having a lot of knowledge of where your Saturn placement is, where your Mars placement is, you know, how strong are either of those planets? Are they in their domains? Are they, you know, in a whatever sign like they don't they feel neutral, like whatever it is uh, and learning about Saturn and Mars where that's in your chart how that's aspecting with other planets and that kind of stuff. Um, if there's, and, and I, I mean, the whole chart can talk about mental illness. If, you know, so I have moon conjunct Mars and moon is about, can be about your, your, your instincts. It can be about, um, your subconscious world. It can be about the way that you need emotional comfort. Um, and having Mars on top of it, it means like uh, in, in and the Mars in my chart is exalted and the moon is in detriment. So the Mars wins. I have poor impulse control. <laughs> like I get mm-hmm. angry. So um, understanding the significations of the malefics and how they interact with your chart. But um, in your answer to uh, how do I use astrology or what has been useful about it for me, uh, in, in terms of mental health care, honestly, for me, it's like marking time is the most useful thing for me. So less than my own natal chart. And because I think with mental illness and people getting into their natal charts, I think people can, because it's just, it, it's often, astrology is often descriptive and it can describe things that you you might already know about yourself but it's like um the symbolic language from which astrology is derived can be so wonderful for people because it's less clinical or you know it has more like soul to it it's a lot more poetic but it uh there are so many multiple interpretations so i would suggest to people who can go a little dark into their own heads and be a little bit internal um, mm-hmm. Get a good astrologer and like also know that astrology isn't th- therapy. 
therapy. Like it, it isn't like yeah. it can give you some insights to bring to therapy. Um, that because I mean, I've known people to get really, really weirdly obsessed with one aspect in their chart or something, and they haven't gone to a good astrologer who's like, oh, well, that's actually not important right now. There's this transit <laughs> happening and you can lean into this good stuff. I think it's also helpful. Uh, just yeah, I was going to say like marking time for me. Uh, marking time is a very healthy thing for me because it helps me track my own cycles and where those go. So having a relationship with the way astrology marks time is really cool for me. Like, um, you know, reflecting on the ever-changing symbols of the sky weather is something that um, teaches me about the dynamism and the variations of the world around me and therefore makes me accept that within myself a lot, um, the variations and the changes that I go through because as a being of this world that has all of its moving pieces, of course, I internally have moving pieces, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I will also say with artists... And if you're like have natal astrology question, I would also say um, to look to where the outer planets, uh, Uranus, Neptune and Pluto might be contacting personal planets or in even in the first house, because those outer planets are like larger concepts. Um, uh, they're like they're like more primordial forces, whereas like, say, Mercury in a natal chart re might represent the person's thinking style, how they need to speak, how they need to communicate. That's very personal. That's one of the personal planets. Whereas like Uranus is sort of like um, the the force which shakes things up and and wants to revolutionize like a lightning bolt that comes in. And, and Neptune is like the primordial mother sea that dissolves all boundaries and like and uh pluto is like sex and death in a cosmic mm -hmm. sense so those three outer mm -hmm. ones are these in like they can be really intensifiers for people if they're interacting with personal planets so for example if you have your sun which is like you, you know your sun placement is such a it's such a place where we speak about the self and how we need to radiate into the world. If that sun has an opposition to Neptune, which is a great boundary dissolver, you know, you might have some issues with boundaries. And Neptune is very like um, projectiony and reflecty and worlds of dreams. So looking at sun opposition Neptune, if that's in your chart, you're like my my son, the selfness, the boundaries are being washed over and there's a lot of risk for projection. But then also knowing how to also see the other side of that coin and go, ah, yes, but because that sort of veil is thin between my selfness and Neptune, you know, that gives me a lot of these ideas or I can think about these larger Ide ideas mm. and ideals but I think training yourself to think about at least two interpretations of things when it comes to looking into astrology or if you're new at it like don't just read one person's interpretation start to learn the the symbolic language itself and definitely commit to making your own experiences like like looking at your own experiences in conjunction with the sky weather, because you're again, your own internal language of it is going to be so much more valuable to you than just like copying and pasting kind of other people's ideas. Um, but your experiences with it are what's important. I think it's easy to get really projectiony with astrology or to find a part in your chart that you really like and then like, double down on making it your personality. But, but yeah, like, you yeah. know, and in my system, a natal chart just doesn't it doesn't just describe the self. It describes all the areas in, in your life. So the like in my form of astrology, we really we're really looking at the also people, you know, in your life show up in your chart, you know, mm -hmm. Um 
just stuff like that. Like it, your natal chart actually isn't totally all about you in the, in the way that in, in the astrology I do. And I think the passing sky weather is such an opportunity to go, oh, every time a moon is in Aquarius, I feel X, Y, Z, you know, I feel yeah. I plan for this. I can, I can try out that or it's just like, ooh, I've never um, noticed when there was a like a, a Saturn retrograde. What does that mean? Where is that in my chart? How am I experiencing it? The, some, the more you bring your own mind into it and hold it all with a light hand and get really playful, mm-hmm. I think that that's where it's empowering. Yeah. I think Zandra will love this response. Yeah? So thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I love the also just holding everything with a with a light hand, yeah. um, not getting too attached to these labels and identities is a big theme of this. Um, uh, well, at the end of every episode, Athena, we always ask our, we always ask each other, what is the art life? So tell me, what is the art life? The art life is holding everything with a very light hand. <laughs> yes, it yeah. is. It is. Um we we also want to be able to share with our guests, uh, with our audience, where people can find you. So whether it's your classes or your social media, where can people find your art? The best way to, I think, interact with my art is that I have two Instagrams. One of them is monbinary. It's M-O-N-B-I-N-A-R-Y. And that's um, wherever I'll do my news and updates. And I've I've been making me- a lot more music lately. So that's up there, too. And you can find that. The other Instagram is where my weirder shit is. And mm-hmm. it's um, the Earl Greg. That's T-H-E-E-A-R-L-G-R-E-G. And Earl Gregory is um, a character of mine and he runs that Instagram. But there's other stuff there too. <laughs> and um, you can check out my website. I'm athenaready.com if you want to see. Um, I have a movie coming out. Uh, and you can see the information on it there and stuff. Um, yeah, uh, that's Thank good. You. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have links to everything in the show notes, including a link to the Tribeca shorts, which people can view, um, if they're listening to this episode when it comes out. Cool. Yay. Well, thank you so much. We are, you know, Zandra and I are talking about how we we hope to have more episodes on this topic. And so I hope to have you back. Anytime. In the future. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. I'll see you soon. I will see you really soon. That's crazy. Oh, my gosh. All right. With that, I am going to say goodbye. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Grace, you were right. I absolutely loved the astrology segment you got in there at the end of this interview. Oh my goodness. So detailed and deep and and broad. And I, I really loved that, especially what Athena was saying about how astrology is descriptive. That is how I feel about it too. So there were so many moments in this interview when the way that Athena described something was like, oh, yes, I need to remember that because that's how it feels to me. Yeah, I just really appreciated how practical all of the stories were and how this was, you know, this this interview was about um, the descriptors, you know, even like a mental health diagnosis, how this uh, this interview was about like, like, like there's no shame 
there's no shame here. Like you have a diagnosis and you can still do so much and you can show up on set and ask for what you need. You can communicate uh, what, you know, what tools you're working with and what your needs are. And it's actually no problem. And everyone works better together when they have that awareness. And so I just really appreciated how, you know, our culture is changing, but how Athena is setting a good standard too. Every time they, you know, go into yoga teacher training and, and, and is, uh, you know, and articulate, um, their diagnosis and, you know, what their needs are like, like they're setting the standard. They're, they're shifting the culture as an artist, um, towards more mental health literacy and everyone learning to ask for what they need, whether they have a mental illness or not. It's just so great to hear their example and to hear about specific instances of doing this because it makes the whole thing seem so simple. And sometimes it is and sometimes it's not, but just knowing that somebody out there is doing this so professionally um, is oh i'm getting chills of like it's uh it's just it's it's so uplifting to me to hear but i must ask you grace what is the art life the art life is being a person not a brand <laughs> a lot of like we are three-dimensional beings i'm so glad that conversation <laughs> came in Sandra, what is the art life? The art life is in your foot. Ooh. I just loved that description of when you were talking about thinking is only in the head region and um, and like disagreeing with that just all through life and gave the example that sometimes they think in their foot. And it's like, oh, <laughs> what a great point. What a great reminder. I don't know if I think in my foot, but maybe, but I probably should. I know that I feel in, not just physically, but I feel my emotions in all parts of my body. I feel different things in different places. I have to, and you know, it's, it's very valuable for me to notice um, my body, my somatic, you know, experiencing of events. It makes me a better actor too, to have that awareness. And so I, I, that's like, yeah, the thinking with the foot. I want to do a little dance. What does my foot think about this? Ah, well, I really want to go to one of Athena's classes now. I mean, I did before, but now I'm like, when's the next one? I'm uh, linking to Athena's website and social media in the show notes. But um, yeah, Athena does some virtual uh, movement meditation classes that you all should check out. And um you know, if you're on social media, give them a follow so that you can get those updates or check out their website. But yeah, the movement meditation classes are fantastic. And, um, and yeah, all about, you know, assessing the present circumstances. It's not about, uh, doing the class in a certain way. It's about, it's, it's about experiencing yourself in the present moment. And that was just such a big reframe for me. It's not about choreography. It's about, you know, your thoughts and their relationship with your body. And we need more of that in this world. How freeing, Grace. It reminds me of our Artist's Way discussions about fitness and achievement and how fitness is so goal-oriented and dance is part of that. 
and I I enjoy moving my body, but sometimes I feel like I don't know the moves, so I I just freeze and I don't do anything. But I'm I'm really looking forward to more of of this energy from Athena. So time to sign up for a class. That's right. I'm still on this journey too with the the relate my, my relationship with my body and my relationship with fitness and movement. So I'm very grateful for all of the good influences in my life in this area, Athena being a majorly good influence. So Thank you so much, Athena, for coming on the show. Please check out their work. If you enjoyed this episode, you know, let us know. Um, we want to hear from you and we want to see you at our art parties. Yes. You can visit our website, theartlife.show, to subscribe to our newsletter, to sign up directly for the art parties. We also love to update everyone on what our past guests have been doing. So on our newsletter, we we like to include updates from, um, from our friends, from our guests. So that's something else you can find, um, find there. This is all once again at theartlife.show. Well, everyone, until next time, from my side of the world, I wish you all a good morning. And from my side of the world, I wish you all a good night. Bye. Bye. This is The Art Life, a heroin training podcast with Grace Gordon and me, Zandra Robinson Burns. You can find us online and subscribe to our newsletter at theartlife.show and send letters to The Art Life care of Grace Gordon, P.O. Box number 4292, Valley Village, California, 91617. Our theme music is The Stream by Rory. Thank you for joining us.